0: We're not, it has to be 30 minutes on the dot. I mean, we can go a little further. Anyway. Sure. Welcome to Oh Brother, Not Another Podcast, uh, sponsored by Verso Studios at the Westport Library. And my name is Migs Burrows,
1: And I'm Trace Burroughs. And if you like the show, give us a good review on iTunes. Today we have Ed Begley Jr., actor who's got five over 500 credits doing film and television, won seven Emmy nominees for St. Elsewhere. And he he's very into the environment, has a whole line of products which will tell us about. So um, where do, should we start? Do you want to start
0: with the products?
2: Well, Anywhere I, you like, Trace. I'm happy to talk to you guys. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: actually. So, oh, um, I'm sorry. No, I just wanted to sort of start at the, and go backwards, because I just saw the documentary on Michael Fox called Still. I don't know if you've seen that. On, you know
2: i've got to see that yeah. yeah it's
0: it's really amazing and and you have parkinson's or i don't know you've you've apparently been i don't know if there's such a thing as a cure but you've been mediated it's all been mediated right you're you're
2: yeah you're, i'm kind of having till I, I have a book coming out in october so i've kind of an embargo talking about any great details about it but uh there's uh neurological issues that are going on in my family and i found some great relief and i'll tell you something that helps with any neurological problem. And again, I'll talk about this in great detail. In October, I have a book coming out with Hachette Book Group. But uh, there's something called NAD, which is very effective with that. Look it up, NAD, and it's a wonderful uh, you know, supplement that helps a lot with neurological problems. Mm. Glutathione, of course, is also good for that. Glutathione, and both of those I get through an IV, and they help a lot. A hyperbaric chamber will help you a lot, too and stem cells, uh, stem cell of America. Sadly, they're down in Tijuana, they're not in America because there's, hmm. they're not ready for that, that here in America yet, but hopefully they will be soon. But all those things together can be of great help to people who have neurological problems. And, uh, and, am and of course they give, let me be very clear. The AMA approach to it is very good too. The standard approach is to give you carbidopa levodopa. And that of course is something that I take. So, uh, all that works. With, do the traditional, you know, the traditional medicine stuff, what's known and approved by the AMA. Most of it's very, very good, and this certainly is. And then for extra credit, and I mean extra credit, there's other things you can do that will help.
1: Yeah. What, are the, what are the symptoms of Parkinson's?
2: Many people have different kinds of symptoms. Uh, you know, they they get a tremor and what have you. I could pass the sobriety yeah.
0: checkpoint,
2: point I think. <laughs> I mean, I'm very, I mean, very I mean, steady, so I mean, take a little, from I mean, that what you will. Yeah. Some people get a little tightness in their throat, uh, you know, or a lot of tightness in their throat. If you get emotional, good emotional, bad emotional, your throat tightens up. People mm. have a problem with their gait. I don't really have a problem with my gait, so uh, I'll talk about my curious neurological challenge, starting and I'll, I'll talk about it publicly then, but I'm happy to talk about it in very vague ways now save the big punch for october and i'll happily come back on if you guys want to have me on again after that
1: oh sure yeah yeah
2: oh and that book is available for pre-order on amazon see there's a reason (laughs) oh i'm good there's many reasons i'm grateful that we're talking about this pre-order on amazon it's an ed begley book it's called to the temple of tranquility and step on it (laughs) Okay,
0: (laughs) that's great writing this down okay so uh strangely enough
1: at first, you know, you're on um Young Sheldon. And when I first saw that advertised, I was like, <clears> oh my God, they're making another show, a spin-off of the Big Bang Theory. I don't you know, I don't want to see that. But when I started watching it, I really liked it. It's not the usual, I usually have a twisted sense of humor, <laughs> but there's something um nice about it, comforting, and you're on there all the time. So yeah, I see you practically every other day on television. Yeah. Um
2: I feel the same, Trace. It's a wonderful show. Steve Millar was the showrunner. He worked on Big Bang 2, of course. And they decided they do this you know, prequel to uh, Big Bang Theory. And boy, is it a good show. That kid is great. Ian is a wonderful actor. He's got his head on straight. He's had a lot of success as a young actor, but he has no ego issues or anything. He's smart as a whip. He's just sharp as you can imagine. And uh wonderful kid. He only has one major flaw. He somehow thinks I'm hysterically funny. I don't know how <laughs> misguided the poor man could be.
0: Well, a lot of people I Make share him that.
2: laugh in every shot and always have a good time trying to crack him up. He's a great, great kid and a dear friend, as is his mom.
1: Yeah, I don't know how he remembers all those details. He always spews out at everybody. Yellow. Amazing. Uh, He's amazing, mm-hmm. the kid.
0: Yeah. So this, I don't know if Trace will bring it up, but so Trace is a drummer, or has been since he was eight years old, and, and you famously... Well, almost wasn't in the movie, but in This Is Spinal Tap, you you play a drummer in their, in their kind of uh, old, old uh, kinescope uh, video, right, of the group playing?
2: Right, right. Yeah.
0: And you are a drummer? You, you have mus- been trained as a drummer?
2: Yeah, I studied uh, drumming back as early as eighth grade. I was in military school. I got in the marching band there in military school. Then I continued that at Notre Dame High in uh, the San Fernando Valley. And I was in the marching band there. And I studied with the, uh, uh, the brother of John Williams, the wonderful, talented composer. John Williams has a wonderful brother who's a great drummer. Was oh, yeah. back in 1965 when I met him and certainly is to this day working a lot because he's just one of the most talented percussionists out there. And uh, so I, I learned drumming from Don Williams. And I should have pursued it. I did not. I was in a few garage bands and got busy with acting and didn't pursue it. But I had a a modest level of skill when my friend Christopher Guest and Rob Reiner and Harry Shearer and Michael McKean beckoned me to be part of their group. Hmm. And this is, you know, precursor to Spinal Tap. I was one of the drummers there, John Stumpy Peeps, and I'd die in a bizarre gardening accident. (laughs) (laughs) How
0: appropriate. (laughs) Or ironic, whatever, Uh, where you are now. Yeah, yeah. So you've been in a few of the uh, yes, yeah. movies, which were so much fun.
2: Yeah. I was not in uh, Waiting for Guffman, which is, I think, my favorite. Not I think. I know it's my favorite, even though I'm not in it. It's such a great movie. But then I got the wonderful gift of being in Best in Show, an equally fine f- film from Chris Guest, and the same wonderful cast, uh, essentially, as Guffman. I got to be in that and then I got to be in A Mighty Wind and uh, For Your Consideration and the TV show Mascots and the TV show Family Tree and I just uh, love Christopher Guest. I love his humor since back in the early 70s with that National Lampoon Radio Dinner album. Mm. You know, he was so brilliant in that and just a, a great guy too. I know his whole wonderful family, so I'm just blessed to know him. He's been the best thing that ever happened in my career. Is he
1: working on any new sh- movies that you know of?
2: Not right now, but I hope he does. All of his yeah. friends from the movies, all the actors are praying that he has another wonderful inspiration to do another film, and we all love getting together to do it.
1: Is there a script, or he just, he just gives you, says, "I like, this is what you have to c- accomplish in this scene, and you just improv the whole thing?
2: He does all the heavy lifting. He and Eugene Lovey used to do it, you know, and... Guffman and Best in Show in a Mighty Wind. Then it became the wonderful Jim Piddick and he uh, doing the hard work, which is writing the treatment, a 25 page treatment. So, in a, a movie like Best in Show, for instance, I have that whole wonderful scene at the desk and then in the uh, storage closet. But basically, all there is in the treatment is Jerry and Cookie Fleck try to check into the hotel. Their credit card doesn't work. Then okay. he takes them to another uh, a storage closet to give them a room there and they they do that's the hard part doing that then we get to have the fun it and have a party doing improv together just yeah. you know you don't have to learn any lines you just come up with some ideas <laughs> to enhance what chris and eugene or chris and, and jim have done
0: but it is a, it is an acquired skill did you study improv because that it's not as easy as it sounds. you make it sound like we're just riffing but you know it i i took an acting class and had to do improv and it was i i found it impossible I mean, I don't know. So anyway, did you train? Did you go to Second City or do anything like that?
2: I should have gone to Second City, trained with the, my other friends at improv. I have many friends and worked with them on, like, looping on movies, you know, ADR stuff on movies and stuff like that, and some live shows that we did. Uh, I had friends of the committee in Second City, and I was never officially part of those groups, but unofficially I was. So uh, I, I learned, and I also learned a great deal about improv. As a young man in college, I went to college with a man named Michael Richards. You surely know he played Kramer in Seinfeld, and he is a great improvisational actor. And I learned a lot from him and and other people I worked with, Gary Goodrow and John Brent and uh, Paul and Alan Myerson and uh, you know just Carl Gottlieb, Julie Payne, just great, great comic actors and great improvers and then for years i would go and jam occasionally with uh the groundlings here in los angeles oh. and they're a great group and they allowed me to come in i could never keep up with any of them you know we're talking about kathy griffin we're talking about you know incredibly talented people you know and uh i would you know attempt to keep up but i can i can assure you i could not they're amazing
0: yeah isn't it, I've heard that it's not the secret ingredient, but the secret sauce is you say yes to, in a sense, you know, um, yes. historically, you say yes to everything?
2: Yeah, it's yes and. It's and never it's no. You, the one thing that Michael and I got into trouble with when we were doing it, we hadn't read Viola Spolin's book. We didn't know about dough Close or any of those people. So we didn't know the rules of improv. You know, one of us to come out and say, "I'm the king of Scotland." And We go, "No, you're not. You're in a jail cell. You're delusional." That's the one thing you don't do. You want to keep it moving forward. Okay. To try to have a button for the scene. to not have them go on endlessly. To find that, oh, here's a moment. This will close it up. Here's a good line or a good moment, comic moment or a good, you know, dramatic moment. And uh, but we didn't know. Yes, and we hadn't we hadn't gotten that memo.
0: Yeah. So if I said I'm the governor of Connecticut, what would you? what would be a good comeback yes
2: and governor yes please step this way you're going to take pictures for your <laughs> you know you're being indicted for fraud <laughs> step over here sir uh, we need to get and we need to get actually there for the uh, sheriff's department cuz these these will be your booking pictures as well whatever yeah. you say you say yes you instantly go with it and then just add to it you build upon it you never knock any of the blocks down you just build upon what the other performer has done
0: that's great yeah. okay i have got a taste of it I don't know how to come back to it, but anyway. Um. <laughs> so you, you you've developed
1: a lot of uh, environmentally safe products, cleaning products. Um,
2: I did back in the day in 1970 with the first Earth Day. I decided to do everything I could that I could afford. One of the cheapest things I did, which you know was good for the environment, good for my pocketbook. Instead of you know like ammonia or you know Windex or Formula 409, I would use baking soda to clean up and scour instead of Comet. And I would use vinegar and water. And I and that worked, but I thought, wouldn't it be great if somebody made a, a really good cleaning product that worked better than baking soda and better than vinegar and water and, you know, sold that. Then some people, there were some wonderful products that out there. Seventh Generation did some wonderful products. But I found a guy with a great formula and worked with him for years. Then, uh, sadly, that company didn't last more than about four or five years because I it was my fault. I was just too busy. The products were great. I was too busy with my acting career. I was trying to ship it out of my garage between acting jobs. You know, I had a steward in my garage in a nearby storage shed. I was just too busy. But then I got another company that said, look, we know what happened last time. We'll do all the work. We'll bottle it. We'll ship it. You just help us vet the right formulas and go out there and promote it. And that's what we want from you. And so I did that. And that's a wonderful success. Begley's Earth Responsible Products. They're in Costco now in many stores. They're available online at Amazon and elsewhere. Just type Begley Cleaning, and it'll come right up. Begley Cleaning products, or even just Begley Cleaning, and it'll come up.
1: You're one of the first actors to come out for the environment. I remember this decades ago, hearing about you. and
0: Oh, yeah, early uh, adapter. I mean, I'm sure, was that a, a, did it have any negative impact on your career? Like, oh, here here comes a, activist again here comes the 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 green guy i mean was there there any pushback on that because you were so outspoken
2: in the 90s there was before that i wasn't well known enough for it to bother my career at all i was in Mm. such a fledgling career but in the 90s i did i got more vocal about it with the 20 20 year anniversary birthday Mm. and let me be crystal clear i'm not looking for any sympathy or a handout or anything (laughs) i don't need anybody to throw a benefit for me for A dip in work in the 90s. I still worked in television, but I didn't work much in movies. The sum total of studio movies that I did in the 90s was I did six weeks on Greedy, this wonderful movie Ron Howard and Brian Brian Grazer gave me. Then then I worked on Batman Forever for, Mm. uh, I think, three or four days. Joel Schumacher gave me a job in that. Other than that, I could go to Australia and do a movie with a little girl and a kangaroo. That's called Joey. I did that. Miss mm-hmm. Bear I did up in Canada, Little Girl and a Bear. I could do that sort of thing. But here in America, I did a few movies here, but a certain kind of movie. You'll get a, an idea of it. I did Hulk Hogan's Santa with Muscles in 1995. <laughs> so I could do that kind of a movie, too. And grateful for it. All of it, yeah. I'm grateful for every bit of it. Then it was finally Chris Guest, who we talked about just a moment ago, that broke me out of movie jail. He you know, he signed for my things and uh, you know got me spoke before the parole board in this case, which was Castle Rock Entertainment. Said so, no, it'll be fine in this. And again, let me be crystal clear. I was never blacklisted. I, wasn't, I don't think I was on a list in someone's desk somewhere. Don't hire Ed Begley. But I think I just gave people the creeps. You know, that they thought <laughs> I was going to come up to them and say, what are you oh. doing in that bad mile per gallon car? You're a bad person. I'm taking a picture and I'm going to post it online. Not that there was, was much of an online in the 90s. So I guess it wasn't that. I was just... I think right. I just freaked people out. They weren't sure how bad the problem was. Then a lot of people, and more importantly, they thought I was more strident about it than I was. I've never been that guy that points finger, fingers. I'm right. a guy that says, "Here's what I'm doing. You want to join me? Come on. Let's let's do it together. If you want. Try this. This worked for me. Solar worked on this. You know, gray water worked on that. You know, I recycle this. I eat this, and so uh, people became less concerned about that. But it, again, it was. You know, And also, I'd been in some movies that were not big hits. It wasn't all just Ed the Activist as a concern. I was in three movies that did poorly at the box office and didn't get great reviews either. I did Accidental. No, that was a good movie, a great movie, Accidental Tourist. Not that oh, movie. Yeah. I did uh, I did uh, Transylvania 6-5000. I did She-Devil. And I did Meet, Meet the Applegates. So those three movies didn't do well at the box office, and they were not critically acclaimed at all. So after that, it's California. You got the three strikes law in movies too. Three strikes and you're out. And so I didn't work for a while, probably because of that too.
0: It's and- interesting. We we just actually we had the last interviews with Stacy Keach and and he <coughs> uh, and Junior. And um, he mentioned some of these clunker movies. What was the one? It was something about Transylvania. It's
1: called, it's called a Mountain of the Cannibal God. Mountain of the Cannibal Gods that he was in. Like an Italian horror film from the late 70s, which which my daughter's really into watching these kind of
0: films. But which, which brings up that old trope about, there's you no know, such thing as bad roles, just bad actors. So do you, when you're in a movie, have you ever had that, you're in the middle of one of those clunkers, and but saying, oh, what have I gotten myself into? Or do you just plow ahead and say, I'm doing the best job I can? you know?
2: I plow ahead and do the best job I can. You know, there are bad actors they their bad movies, both. And they often intersect, of course. (laughs) The kind of roles you get are kind of, you know, they kind of commensurate with your talent, your skill level. I I certainly needed some work on my uh, skills back in the 90s. And I finally learned years ago that I'll never have the talent that a Joaquin Phoenix or a Meryl Streep has. These These are extremely talented people that do something in acting that is beyond my pay grade but I am able to know all my lines, show up on time, and be cooperative with every department, You know, not just the director and the producers and the writer, but help every department do their job too. And if you do that, you can work as mm-hmm. I have. You know, I started working in 1967, so now I've been working 56 years in my chosen field, 56 years in any line of work. I don't care if you're selling used cars or mm-hmm. aluminum siding or you're an actor, you work 56 years in a business You're very lucky. Are they still shooting young Sheldons? They were up to quite recently, just a few months ago. But now, with the writer's strike, they won't be Mm -hmm. shooting them for a while. But hopefully, they'll resolve all that soon and we'll get back to work.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, essentially, I graduated uh, with a degree in theater from Carnegie uh, in 1967, and I've spent the last 56 years doing nothing. So <laughs> <laughs> I applaud you. <laughs> I applaud you.
2: <laughs> Not nothing at all. This is a great show. It's very well regarded, and I'm oh, very you. happy to be here with you guys. You're doing uh, great.
0: Thanks. We talk about, I've been watching, some, you know, Living with Ed is another series you've done, which is great, with your wife, uh, Rochelle. And uh, it, it's really, it's almost like Ozzy and Harriet, in the in the age of you know sustainable uh and
2: then ozzie and harriet if they met edward alby i think yeah. met, <laughs> yeah. i think that's that would, right. you know yeah
0: if they, right if they met edward, edward alby in the back of an electric uh prius in, in back exactly of a, um but I, so I'm curious about the rain barrel episode. Or maybe it wasn't that. No, it was an interview. Well, anyway, it was about your house. But and you talked about the rain barrel, and then you said you had a 500 or 100 a 50 gallon drum became a 500 gallon drum, and now it's a 10,000 gallon underground. What is that? Is that for drinking water or how do, what is it, What do you use that? How does that water? In work? an
2: emergency, you probably not probably. You certainly could drink it if you heat it in a solar oven to kill all the pathogens and mm. put it through a Brita of filter would be wonderful water if you do those two things. But that you're not supposed to drink it, nor should you, because most people, and I'm sure I'm one of them, have birds on their roof or squirrels on the roof or mm. other rodents or what have you that occasionally wind up on your roof for hopefully a brief period of time. And you can get Giardia or other things. You can get very sick from water that comes in contact with, you know, avian flu or, you know, Giardia or, you know, something <laughs> like that. If, so you, you, but you can use it wonderfully without any treatment. That's how I use it day to day, which is for irrigation. Oh. I use it for irrigation and I can irrigate all my crops with that. And that's very, very helpful. But again, in a pinch in an earthquake or something, if the water shuts off for whatever reason, you can't drink it right out of the Tank, but you can, with simple tools that I that will never run out. That is to say, a solar oven to bring it up to not even boiling, just 140 degrees kills everything. So yeah. you get up to that, then you let it cool off and put it through a Brita filter. It'd be ooh la la, be the best water you ever had because it's rainwater. It's wonderful yeah. water.
1: Yeah, crops. So you have a big like yard or is this with?
2: I'm being a bit grand when I say crops, but I suppose they are. <laughs> I and have. I have six raised beds and uh, right now I've got corn in there, tomatoes, lettuce, uh, eggplant, um, nice. kale. Uh, I, yeah, I got lots of stuff growing, I always do. I've always had a vegetable garden since I had my first, first home in 1979. Indeed, that's the reason I wanted to have my home. Besides having a backyard for my kids, that was a big you know, part of it. But also to have a vegetable garden in that same backyard for the kids and for me, you know, I wanted the kids to know where food came from. It didn't come from the Safeway Bush or the Ralph's tree. You know, <laughs> I wanted to know that it actually came from the ground, from good soil and water, good clean water and sunshine and, you know, good seeds. So that's what I've shown them. My children are now age 45 and 44 and 27, and they all are deep green environmentalists who, you know, love the soil and love getting their hands in the dirt and have always grown things themselves so i did something right
0: yeah it shows you eating both you and your wife were eating raw corn on the cob i didn't know you could do that i thought it wouldn't upset your stomach i mean what you know you just no it's
2: very tasty raw it's very sweet and tasty raw too oh. i cook it mostly but once in a while i prove a point by just eating yeah. it fresh right off the the corn stalk and uh husk it and you're ready to go it's very tasty
0: When I told a few people we were going to be talking to, one thing that came up, it seems silly to even ask, maybe, because we should all, but can you give a simple explanation of what people, the term is used, carbon footprint. What is a a carbon, what is my car? what is your carbon footprint? I mean, how do you evaluate it? How do you quantify it? I mean.
2: Anything that we do, anything that cave dwellers did back many, mm -hmm. many thousands of years ago, has a carbon footprint. We weren't concerned about it because we had a stable level, 250 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere for thousands and thousands of years. The last time it was this high was tens of thousands, I think even hundreds of thousands of years ago. And there was life on the planet then, but not humans and not other species that we need today for today's planet, today's environment. So this amount of CO2 is dangerous and people started really quantifying it you know, Dr. Keeling was the first to really look at and see this curve. It was starting to get like a hockey stick where there was more CO2. And they measured very scientifically. They began to measure it in the ice core, you know, in the Arctic Circle in Antarctica. They started to measure it. And, like, things have been sealed up for hundreds of years, like an old telescope that had been sealed up. You suddenly had air from, like, the 1700s, what have you, that you could test. Very smart of them. Mm. So they started testing and saw, yeah, this is real. This is happening CO2 is going up. Why? You know, is it some, there's a, the the planet tilts on its axis sometimes and you have warming from that, but that's not what was happening now. What's happening, that always happens, the tilt of the axis and the change in the temperature, but we should be going to a cooling session right now for the past many decades, you know, 30 or 40 years. This should be a cooling time by the way it is the axis, not warmer. People say, mm. oh, this isn't happening. Just the tilt of the axis. That's been going on forever. Talk to a scientist, you moron. Yeah, that's true. There is a tilt of the axis and it changes the temperature. But right now, you're headed the wrong way. It should be cooler now, not warmer. But it's not. We're overcoming that tilt in the axis and then some. And mm-hmm. now we have these feet I'm getting long-winded about yeah, what it is. No, Let's no, talk about ahead. what you can do yeah. to, to reduce your carbon footprint. That is a thing that quantifies how yeah. much CO2 is there. Let me be fair to even make my solar panels. Make my solar panels as a carbon footprint. Making my rain barrel except. You know, my rain tank underground or any of that may, has a carbon footprint. Cave dwellers, you know, burning a fire in their cave had a carbon footprint. You know, all that has a an effect. The question is, which is going to be lower and give you the better quality of life? People have these baloney studies that aren't scientific at all saying, you know, a Hummer is a better car than the Prius because of the batteries or something. That's just ridiculous. Using 1900s or 1930s, yeah, 1900s, 1970s. Uh, data from a, a mine in Sudbury, Ontario, where they make nickel, you know, and they're saying they're assigning all the nickel pollution from that plant to just the batteries, which is ridiculous. Not a scientific study. Right when I heard that, I said, God, is a, Hummer a better vehicle than the Prius? I had no idea. I said to my friends who are actual Nobel laureates and know about such things, they hmm. have the letters PhD after the name. Stick with the science. That's what I do on climate change or anything. And so you look at something like, your, your home heating bill, you look at your air travel, you look at your ground transportation and all those things, big ticket items like that have a carbon footprint. So if you just go home energy use, vehicle travel and air travel, those three things, you can begin to re- reduce your carbon fo- footprint and make decisions that make them less. Now I'm mm-hmm. going to say something. Sorry, you go ahead. No,
0: no please. You can.
2: There are carbon offsets some of which are trickery and do nothing to reduce the CO2 level in the planet. And, and not and not, some of it even well-intentioned trickery. In the early 90s, they had people who said, You have green power now. We're selling you green power from a dam in Idaho. Yeah. That's wonderful, but the dam's been operating since 1930s. You you buying a share of that, that energy portfolio doesn't put any new green electrons into the grid. So I'm glad you feel good about it. Nothing has changed. The only good, in my opinion, good, you know, offset programs, offset the CO2 use from the big ticket items like air travel, vehicle use and home energy use are the ones that put new electrons in the grid. For every, you know, kilowatt or megawatt that you buy of a green power program like Native Energy or one of those, they they put that equivalent amount that you purchase of new green electrons in the grid with solar, wind or geothermal. So that's what you can do. You can make the best decisions to reduce your energy use. Then in addition to that, you can put up solar and what have you like that. And if you don't have room for a wind turbine in your property, which I certainly do not here in Studio City, you can buy a green power program like that that is a good kind that when you purchase that offset, it goes into the grid in green electrons.
0: Mm.
1: People were saying, uh, I don't know when, several years ago, it's the cows' fault. There's too many cows and no, the methane, methane. yeah, from their g- and, gas. And,
2: and again, taking a true statement, like there's access is tilting and it changes the uh, the the warmth of the planet. That part is true, and certainly cows produce a lot of methane from the front end and the back end, both. And you're well advised, you know, to eat as little meat as possible. In my case, there's no meat since 1970. I stopped eating beef back then, but you know, even if you're a meat eater, to just reduce your consumption of meat is good. If you want to become a pescatarian or a vegetarian or, in my case, a vegan, that's all a good thing, too. But, uh, you know, y- you just have to you do the best you can is what it comes down to. Anything makes pollution. Solar panels make pollution is a question of how much. A mountain bike makes pollution to manufacture it. The tires have rubber on them. There's lots of steel and plating and things, but it's not more energy a mountain bike than it is you know a a little car what have you that they're trying to sell you Hmm. you know it's it's less when you just think about they're they're doing some funny math when they try to convince you otherwise
0: well the other pushback i hear you know i'm just one person okay i'll go to the store and i'll buy a 12 dollar led light bulb which you know it's like you know uh, but what about you know, does that, people will say, you know, does that really, does that make a difference? My my LED light bulb in the living room, is that really going to change anything?
2: It's all part of a possibility of change and some real change that has occurred. We've done some things here in L.A. We, since 1970, when I started with the first Earth Day, we've had four times the cars in L.A. since 1970 and millions more people. Yet the smog is greatly reduced. We did mm-hmm. that because we put up cleaner power plants. We mm-hmm. cleaned up the existing power plants. Lots of green, greener cars at first with small control devices, catalytic converters and elsewhere, and then cleaner cars that burn a lot less, you know, fuel and make less pollution. But I just, I'm kind of thinking as I talk here, and a, a few minutes ago, I talked about methane from cows and what have you. I didn't mean to be dismissive of that. One of the best things you can do that very inexpensive to do, in fact, you'll save money, is reduce or eliminate your meat consumption. That's mm. not. There's nothing trivial about that. I want to make clear, becoming a vegetarian is one of the greenest things that I did. And that's something that can be quite painless. You know, if you like vegetables, which I do, and even if you're a meat eater, as I said, just eat less of it, it's a very good green thing that you can do. So there's many things you can do. But again, I'm going to be honest about that. It's not just my bike riding, my energy efficient bulbs and all that stuff I've been doing since 1970, the electric car I purchased in 1970. I had one that far back. That's all part of what cleaned up the air in L.A., but not all of it. If it was just that, nothing would have been accomplished. The three columns upon which all green successes are built upon. Personal action, like we just talked about. Mm -hmm. The cars, the bikes, the bus pass, all that stuff I've used over the years. Vegetarianism, all good things. Corporate responsibility is the second. And good legislation is the third. Those Mm -hmm. three things is how we got less smog in L.A. It wasn't just me riding my bike or taking the bus. It was going before the Air Resources Board with good legislation, which was the clean air act and getting them to make a change and getting companies to make those cleaner devices, cleaner buses, cleaner cars and all that stuff. And they all three work together. If there's a market for that, because people are buying green things like I have been since 1970, then the manufacturers are more inclined to do it. They're also more inclined to do it because of good legislation and, you know all of it works together but they have to be three columns not just people buying light bulbs and doing green things you need good legislation and corporate responsibility all three you get nothing done
0: right Uh, because for every one light bulb i buy or could buy you know general motors could buy 12 million uh, and change right right change yeah um so what did you get Larry David to go electric with his vehicles, or did you? Did oh, you
2: I didn't need to do him? anything with Larry. Uh, he's <laughs> been a very. I've known him since 1980. I met him with Michael Richards on a show called Friday. And oh, I had the great a great pleasure. Yeah. yeah, great, very funny show, and Larry was great on, of course. And I re was reintroduced to him on Saturday Night Live when I hosted that, and the, had the great pleasure of being in the sketch, which was hysterically funny. It was the only sketch of his that was on Saturday Night Live during his brief stay there. But I was in it and it was a very, very funny sketch. Every bit as good as any episode of Seinfeld or Kerber, anything that he did. He was always a comic genius and a great writer and a great performer. And so uh, I worked with Larry David a few times over the years. And I was in whatever works, a movie with him as well. I'm very lucky to know him and he's given me some great jobs. So thank you, Larry.
0: And he was an early adapter of, of EV and
2: very much. So he had a Prius at first, cause that's all that was practical to get around a place like LA or anywhere. And then he had, you know, he's had other electric cars and other things. And he's always been extremely helpful with the NRDC and other good groups doing green things. He gives time and money and his largesse to these causes. And it, it's a lot more effective than things that I've done. He really has a very big megaphone. So he has a, a loud voice in these matters which is quite helpful
0: yeah and you've been on curb your enthusiasm as well
2: right? yeah i've done a couple of those so thank you laurie on many levels
0: <laughs> grace did you have a... um
1: you still write well on a lot of the write-ups on you it says you write public transportation to say you know you still do that
2: I do. I took the subway just the other day to go downtown L.A. uh, for the opening of the regional connector. This thing that added three stops to our rail system and, more importantly, makes it a contiguous line. You don't have to leave your seat to get all the way from Long Beach to Azusa, which you don't know L.A. geography, probably, but it's a real long way. It's many, many miles, and you can sit in the same seat and go from Azusa all the way to, you know, Long Beach or to Santa Monica. So it's a great rail system that we have complemented by the backbone of the transportation system, which is our buses. You know, our buses are very important. You don't want to build rail and neglect buses. So we we're not doing that. We had a brief misstep where buses were neglected for a while as we built out our very necessary rail system. A lot of people were opposed to the rail, though, and I understood that. But it's like a big city hospital. You get a lot accomplished by the more bang for your buck stuff, you know tongue depressors and syringes and lab coats and all that and good medicine. But you also in a big city hospital want an MRI that's expensive and does a different thing. That's what the rail system is. Hmm. It costs more money, but it does a very important thing. Getting people off the streets, the crowded streets with traffic underground in many cases or elevated or places that are not holding up traffic. A few places it's at grade. So there is, you know, you stop traffic briefly as a train goes by, but, um, it's a very good system taking more people, more miles than any transit system in the world. And uh, we're we're just trying to make it better. It had a big problem with the pandemic because people, of course, stopped riding. Nearly anybody rode. And then another element took over a lot of people who are unhoused, sought refuge there. And we want to help those people, not just, you know, throw them out in the streets without any help. We want to help those people, but also another element of people using and abusing and dying of drug overdoses in our subway stops now, in our rail system. So we have to fix that so people feel safe going back to the rail system. But we got dealt a big blow here with the pandemic. And so horrible changes occurred. We need to get it back. Not for me. I can hop in my electric car and go somewhere if I feel threatened in the rail system. Many, many millions of people in L.A. don't have that luxury of another an alternative form of transportation other than the rail. They have to get there by rail to their job, to pick up their kids and get to the hospital. So we need to get it back for them and not for me and my daughter who've been promoting the rail system. It's good we're using our voice today, I suppose, but we're we're doing it not for us, but for others. You
1: know, I always wondered, uh, LA has a subway system, right? And when I lived there for six years and I felt uh, an earthquake, and I always wonder, God, that sounds scary. I mean, you're in a, a subway down there and there's an earthquake. I don't know. What do you-
2: That's understandable. But let me tell you something. And right away, you're going to understand it, uh, I believe, and embrace it. There are tunnels in the Southern California that have withstood earthquakes since the 1800s. I'm talking about rail lines where the Union Pacific mm-hmm. still goes. Not Union Pacific, but different rail systems go uh, now, today, they're still intact and have not fallen down in those many earthquakes, earthquakes. Why? It's a tube. It's a very solid structure. A box is a very,
0: mm.
2: un- you know, easy to knock down structure. A box is like a building or a house, you know. So but those tubes, if I was lucky enough to be near a subway when an earthquake was starting, I'd run down into it for the security <laughs> of that tube. It's a very, you know, like a geodesic dome. It's a secure thing because of the, the you know, the construction of it. And so is a tube, and uh, they would they, be very safe in a subway. And uh, and they did, besides just the nature of the tube of it, there's other things that they've done in there that make it. Anything that they did after 1971 has a certain level of safety from that big earthquake we had in 71. After the 94 quake, that was the big quake in Northridge, we did even more. So anything built after 94, which much nearly all of the rail system was, nearly all of it has been ba- built after 94, it's very, very
0: safe in an earthquake. That's good. That's good to hear. One time I went to L.A. many years ago, there was an earthquake. You know, I was in the Universal Hotel or whatever, and we're all out on the street in our pajamas. But it was interesting. Uh, uh, and there was also a, a through-way sniper on the loose the same week that I was there. But... <laughs> oh, boy.
2: That's a <laughs> double week. I'm sorry. You were in town for that one. Yeah, pretty. Both those. Wow.
0: Um, but anyway, we, we, we're ready to any, – any last uh, – any things you yeah. want to talk com- coming up, or, Trace, any last? Be,
2: uh, go ahead, Trace.
0: Oh, I don't any other questions. Yeah, just anything you want to, before we go out, last, last product.
2: I'll just say I was very proud to also be on Better Call Saul. I love that oh. show. That was oh, yeah, a great man. show. Yeah. I'm grateful to Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould for having me on that, and that wonderful cast I got to work with, Young Sheldon. I hope I'll be back for another season of that. They're planning on another season. We'll see when the strike ends. And if we get back to that, and I hope we do again, the cleaning products available at, uh, you know, Amazon or anywhere online, just Begley cleaning and at many Costco stores. We have them in Costco, not all the Costco stores, but many of them already. And again, I got that book coming out from the Hachette book group group, October 3rd. Just look up Ed Begley book as we get closer to October. Or you can pre-order it now for God's sake Ed Begley book. And there's some green books I have there about, Green Lifestyle, those are fine, but this book is called To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It, and it's more of a book about Hollywood and my life and some very funny stories and interesting things that happened over the many decades from 1949 when I was born.
1: Well, I did have a question. So, your dad was well known for doing 12 Angry Men, and you there was a remake, and you were in it, right?
2: I would not in it. I would love to be in a production of Twelve Angry Men, but I love that movie and I love that script. And uh, one day I, I hope to do it. Yeah, it's a great, great story.
0: Yeah. Make Mary remake Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman again. That was uh...
2: <laughs> here, here. That was great. Louise Lasser, Mary Kay Place, Martin Mo. Coleman. Was he
0: in Martin Moe? Was in that one? No, that was good. Firmwood tonight. Yeah, that was. Fernwood. Yeah,
2: Firmwood tonight. But I think he might have been in Forever Firmwood before Firmwood tonight. I oh, yeah. think so.
0: Yeah fantastic but well, well you've really spanned your career is kind of a history a hollywood history lesson but um well thank you so much yeah
2: thank you guys so much for having me on great thanks Make. thanks trace Hi.